Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker. Coming up... Net migration is to be blown out of the water this week with predictions it could reach as high as 700,000. Israel's on the brink of striking a deal to free some hostages and halt the fighting in Gaza. And there's a COVID calamity as the former chief medical officer explains the UK was woefully unprepared for a pandemic. You think? Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is your home of common sense and we are here once again for your delectation over the next two hours and we're going to be asking all the right questions. Why, for example, are we allowing doctors to hold the NHS to ransom? Since the striking season began, all the men and women in the white coats, that's them, have done. It's cost our health service billions of pounds and God knows how many deaths they've caused. How is it possible to still have a railway service that is not fit for purpose, overpriced and completely unreliable, riven as it is still by strike action from the extremist trade unions? And when will we finally get what we want when it comes to immigration? Tonight, I'll be telling you how net migration figures for the last 12 months will actually be going up, not down. Contrary to what the lefty lawyers and politicians will tell you. That's right, another 700,000 people are now living in this country. And what good will tax cuts do for us if they are announced tomorrow by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, but then delayed by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak until after the next election? Do they think we're that stupid? Are they really waving a cash carrot in front of us, only now to deny it to us later? They say they want to cut tax and reward hard work. Well, that'll make a pleasant change. But they're saying they can't do it all at once. For heaven's sake... It's taken them a good 13 years to bring our tax burden up to the highest rate it's ever been since the Second World War. Tonight, I'll be delivering my manifesto for change, what I believe Jeremy Hunt must do in tomorrow's autumn statement if he is to stand any chance of re-election and if this country stands any chance of recovering its mojo. It ain't looking too good for them at the moment. The latest polls have them going down to 198 seats versus Labour on 354. Now that is some tax cut. Meanwhile, there are still terrorists on the loose in England having arrived here on small boats. Your local council's rinsing you every time you park your car. The BBC is still trying to massage the truth and feed you propaganda. And finally, those women and children are still being held hostage by those ghastly monsters of Hamas in Gaza. We'll bring you the latest news tonight as it develops from all over the world. We'll show you the big stories, including that heartbreaking tragedy involving the four schoolboys. Plus, we'll bring you tomorrow's newspapers with a brilliant panel and we'll be taking your calls as well because your opinions, of course, matter the most to us. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. 
Now, don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Book that call. Uh, the call will cost you the national rate. But it's no surprise, is it, that net migration to the UK is expected to hit a record high of 700,000 later this week, piling even more pressure on Rishi Sunak to regain control of Britain's borders. Some joke, that is. The expected rise could well open him up to attacks from the right wing of his party, particularly after he sacked Suella Braverman and the Rwanda plan uh, was blocked in the courts last week. To talk about this and much more, I'm joined by Deputy Leader of Reform UK and former MEP himself, Ben Habib, and human rights lawyer, David Hayes. Ben, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Um, Good evening. Hard to believe, isn't it, that some are going, oh, that's a bit of a surprise because we've been told by the lefty lawyers for about the last 12 months that, oh, the only reason that net migration is so high is because of Ukraine, because of Hong Kong. Yeah, lockdowns. Of... We had a, you know, a backup of people who yeah. wanted to come here and all of a yeah. sudden they came... I mean, I but did it... a story yeah. with, with um, Migration Watch just a week or two ago where they said, you know, by the next 10 years, we'll need about another 15 Birminghams with the number of people who are coming in. And that was all poo-pooed by the lefties, saying, oh, no, you've got the figures all wrong. Well, apparently we haven't got the figures all wrong because more people are now coming legally and staying longer, which is what I've always suspected, yeah. than ever. Well, you know, two years ago we had... Well, for years under the Conservative government, we had 300,000 people a year, net migration. Yes. Two years ago we had 500,000. That was the first kind of uh, head above the parapet on what was, you know, to come later. Last year we had 600,000 net. This year they're saying 700,000. You add that all together, mm. you're talking about two or three million over the last yeah. four or five years. Right. That is three cities the size of Manchester. Yes. All needing to be housed, all needing medical care, mm. all needing infrastructure, schools and so on. Right. No wonder the public services are under pressure. And yet they say we need migration in order to alleviate the strains in our labour market. Well, there are 6.2 million people claiming universal right. credit to a greater or lesser extent, not in the labour market because... It doesn't pay to work. Right. We've been taxed to hell. Mm. Um, Jeremy Hunt, for the first time, by the way, has acknowledged that cutting taxes would grow the economy. He said, yeah. this is going to be an economy... It's gonna funny be how they've now got the money. They've found it somehow. Uh, I know. As soon as there's some electoral pressure, mm. they find the money. Yeah. But as you rightly said in your brilliant exposition, if I may say... Which Thank you. you. went across all the problems we're facing pretty yeah. much as a country. Um, we needed to cut taxes for years. Yes. And if we had cut taxes, Mike, we would have the working and middle classes fully deployed. There would, there would not be 6.1 million people on universal mm. credit. That would alleviate the need for migration, un effectively unskilled labour coming into the United right. Kingdom. And if we didn't have the migration that we've got, we wouldn't have the pressures on the housing market, the health service, yeah. the infrastructure, the, roads. the schools, the roads, yeah. and so on. And it's a virtuous circle. Mm cut taxation, get businesses working working properly, yeah. get people back into work, and lo and behold, the United Kingdom operates brilliantly. And we could go back to the way it used to be, not that many years ago, actually, because I say that this has all been turbocharged in the last kind of five years, it seems to me. I mean, you and I have known each other probably as long as that. And when this whole sort of Brexit debate started after the referendum, and because it didn't stop after the referendum, say 2017, 2018, you know, we didn't have anything like the migration problem that we have now. No, now, but we did think it was bad then. It was but it was bad. A year, it was bad then. Doubled, yeah. but, but now we're, we're being told 
told by those who are saying, oh, don't worry, um, uh, the ones who think that migration is a good thing, oh, don't worry, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go back down to about 300,000 a year. I mean, that's, you know, that's 3 million massive. in 10 years. Yeah. And let's not forget, when they talk about 300,000 net or 500,000 net, they're saying net. Yeah. Gross figures are much higher. Last year, 1.1 million new people of different ethnic backgrounds came to the United Kingdom. And the other issue here, which we haven't discussed, which I, I absolutely must discuss, mm. is the multicultural silos in which the United Kingdom is now operating. Yes. And we've seen that manifested recently in the marches, what I would call the anti-Israeli marches mm. on our streets, which actually had a subtext of anti-Britishness about Definitely. it. And, you know, we're going to end up in a kind of um, tinderbox of ethnic minorities in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Not the kind of multiculturalism we would like, where you get a manageable amount of migration yeah. with values being shared, a homogeneous mm. new set of values being created in the country moving forward uh, in harmony. Yes. What we're going to get is lots of different cultures operating yeah. in silos, not ethnically mixing. And like France, when that Algerian chap was shot earlier this year, mm. do you remember by the French yes. police? France went up a light from Marseille all the way to Calais. France was uh, a, a light with inter-ethnic mm. violence. And we don't want that in the United Kingdom. There's a very sinister side to multiculturalism in the way that we're practicing it. It needs to be called out. Suella Braverman did her best. Yeah. Rishi Sunak. Look what happened to her. Yeah, Rishi Sunak sacked her for, for, for doing that. And, you know, we've really got to get a grip of this problem. And the economy, our culture, the way we view our history, all of these things are tied up together. As I mentioned, if you cut taxes, you need less migration mm. because you get British people working. If you get the economic machine moving forward, you have less pressure on the public services. The economy grows. If the economy grows, the exchequer gets more money. If the exchequer gets more money, it stops taxing, taxing us. And we get liberated economically and we aspire. We cease to be dependent mm. and we aspire. Mm. And we become a growing, positive, proud, independent, Moving forward, yeah. United Kingdom. A bit and like a bit like we used to be. A bit like we say. used to be. David, yeah. uh, let me bring David Haynes, uh, um, a human rights lawyer. David, sorry to keep you waiting there, but Ben's very excited about this. He always <laughs> is, and so am I. Um, but it's true, isn't it? We seem to have now kind of changed the nature of our immigration. You know, I was born and raised in London. I went and lived in New York for 10 years. You know, I'm familiar with multicultural cities. I love them. I think they're great. But something's changed. You know, people who went to New York always went, to, they went there to become New Yorkers. People who came to Britain wanted to come to Britain because they respected the country. They looked up to Britain. Now they come to Britain because of soft touch. And they think, we can just go there and nobody's going to bother us. Good evening. Good, good evening to you both. I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of what, what, what you've just said and obviously what, what, what Ben has said. And, you know, I think one thing that, that uh, you, when you look at the government, one thing that they've certainly managed to achieve is that they've not done anything in terms of protecting human rights. They've done nothing in terms of genuine asylum seekers. And in terms of protecting the borders and businesses, they've also failed there. So th that's the one thing they've achieved is failing for everybody. Um, and then at, at the same time, taking us the British people, I think, for fools, because they're, they're weaponizing the spectre of someone crumbing across on a boat when the real figures and the real concern that I think we need to be looking at are legal migration and the issues there. Um, because they're bigger numbers than people that are in the, the backlog as well. So I think, you, you know, it's certainly not a very, very 
it's a terrible situation. Yeah, and the reason for the number going up, unlike what we were told it would do by those lawyers who thought that, you know, this was just a bump in the road because of Ukraine and because of Hong Kong, the reason they're going up is that workers who are coming here on workers' visas are asking to stay longer, which was always my suspicion, because, you know, we know, for example, that there's a lot of people coming here on student visas um, who are basically not really coming to study, they're coming to live, and we know that they're bringing dependents with them, and the whole system just seems to be like a sieve Nobody's really got their eye on it. Nobody really knows who's coming in. I'm told the Home Office actually banned applications for business studies courses from Bangladesh because there were so many people coming um, that they couldn't quite believe their eyes. Hmm. I mean, I think, I think ben, ben said it very well when he said about getting a grip, and I think the, the government has is, is shown that they're not capable of doing that. And a long time ago, when I was a trainee solicitor, even then, there were student visa English language scams yeah. that were going on then. And that's some time ago. And it's only got worse and worse and worse. And then when you look at how the figures of uh, uh, the, the figures we're expecting to come out in a day or so, it even looks like they're cooking the books there because the figures have been kind of recalculated in terms of how student visas are, are looked at. And all of this, you know, from a human rights perspective, all of this is from one side, but from a human rights perspective, it's also making the genuine asylum seekers villainized yeah. and, and it's harming the genuine people that need our help. And there are some genuine people that definitely need our help and that should be coming here. Yeah. And so it's it, the government really needs to get a grip and all they've proven is that they're incapable of doing that. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? And it's not just the Home Office, Ben, but we know the Home Office uh, who have made a specific um, kind of effort to stop government policy. We saw last week that piece in The Telegraph that Stephen Edgington managed to get from an insider at the Home Office who said, yeah... Wasn't that revealing? Just incredible, yeah. where they said basically they're not interested in carrying out government policy. Anything that tries to prevent migration uh, will be stamped upon. We also know, for example, um, that we've got... Apart from the current terrorist um, sort of enclave that we're trying to track around Britain that has disappeared, there's three of them apparently, there's about 50 uh, prior terrorists, known terrorists, who are in the country who can't be deported because of their human rights. And you just go, yeah. what? Yeah, no, what? Your head explodes yeah. with absolute sort of irritation. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the other interesting thing here is that the biggest form of illegal migration comes through legal migration. People who have visas come here, and you've kind of touched on it, you know, they come here with visas and they never leave. Right. And we haven't got the wherewithal or inclination to track them, find out who they are, no. and deport them. And they'd be the easiest to deport. You would think. They've got because no, we know who these guys are. We, we, you think you'd know who they are, and they've got no legitimate right. reason to be here. They've got no complaint about their home country. Mm. They came here from a peaceable country, presumably, to which they can go back. Yeah. But, you know, our systems are broken. We have a government that is basically inept. Yeah. And, as you say, the civil service, I think we're standing throughout her time as Home Secretary Priti Patel in opposition to her. And then when Suella Braverman was Home Secretary, they were standing in opposition to her. Right. And they, as you rightly said again, Mike, they will not stop migration. No. They're wed to it. I think they see it as some kind of virtuous... Um, I, I, a virtuous step for the United yeah. Kingdom to be all-embracing of all cultures. But what they don't realise is these cultures come from very different backgrounds, very different mm. values. They often hold our values in contempt. Right. Um, and also, they're not coming here to, to take what the best of Britain is and to enjoy it and to wave the flag. I mean, you were saying earlier about the, the Palestinian marches. The, I, the I call them the anti-Israeli anti marches. Anti yeah. marches. Anybody seen wearing a poppy in those marches? None. No. Because they have no, no care for our traditions, no care for our history. And climbing all over our war memorials. Yeah. Why would you do that? Mm. Why would you desecrate British war memorials 
in a pro-Palestinian, ostensibly pro-Palestinian yeah. march. There's something else going on here. Yeah. And this is my biggest concern. And so, again, Suella Braverman made this very clear in her speech in Washington, that this country and indeed Western democracies face an existential threat from unbridled migration, both legal and illegal. Yeah. And it's going to hollow us out. We're not going to be a nation state. What is a nation state? A nation state is a shared language, a shared culture, a shared history. A shared heritage, yeah. A shared heritage, a shared sense of belonging. Yes. And that is being eroded. And we've got to call it out mm. before it becomes gets to a point where we, we're no longer calling it out, but we're facing the threat to which yeah. Suella Braverman was pointing. Yeah, I think that has to be said. I'm joined now by Conservative MP Sir Geoffrey Clifton-Brown. Delighted to have you on the show, Sir Geoffrey. Can't believe it's taken us this Hello, long Mike. to get, get, get you on the new turbocharged uh, Independent Republic, which is on from 9 to 11 now, uh, instead of 10 to 1 in the morning. <laughs> um, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, there are many problems facing the Tory party coming up to the next election, but, but you can't really get away from the migration, uh, whether it's legal, illegal people staying too long, people coming who shouldn't come, people coming and then getting lost in the system. You know, I reckon, and I say this as, as a genuine friend of, of the Tory party, you know, I'm not a Tory, but I will always support the Tory party as long as they do Tory things. At the end of the day, this is the problem that you have to fix. If you fix it, you might even win. I agree with that. Uh, it's, it's amazing how widespread across the country people care about this issue. And you might say, well, in the Cotswolds, which is as far away from some of the ports of entry as anywhere, that people wouldn't be interested, but they jolly well are. And so I do agree with you. We've got to fix it. We've got to find a way of reducing the number of people who come into this country and, above all, actually be able to have a system where, where the country can make a choice of whether somebody is entitled to come in here and, as your correspondent was saying, enjoy the benefits of this country... It's, it should be our country that makes these decisions. But at the moment, it's all sorts of uh, European court, the Convention on Human Refugees, and all sorts of external factors determine who comes in here, and that's not right. Yeah. Although it was the Supreme Court this time around that actually said that it was unlawful to send people to Rwanda. So as much as people can go, the ECHR is to blame, you know, the European Union is to blame, all of which may be true, in this particular instance, at the moment, it's the Supreme Court. That's true. But we are now about to pass emergency legislation and we will have to try and get that legislation um, so that it is Parliament that's, uh, who is making the decisions on these matters, not the courts, yeah. not the European court, not our own court, not the Convention on Refugees. It should be Parliament that makes these decisions and our party, our Parliament, should be making a decision to make it much tougher to come in yeah. here. Well, I mean, a lot of people thought that Parliament was the final arbiter of these things until the Supreme Court stuck its bleeding oar in. But let's talk to David Haig, who's a lawyer. David, tell us from your experience of the law, um, will it make any difference? And, and, and if it will make a difference, what emergency legislation is passed, then why the hell didn't they do it earlier? I think. You know, I mean, I, think, I don't think we can be blaming the European Court on this one at the moment. I mean, the, the, you know, Lord Reid from from you know is, is not French. He's British. It's a British court that done this, and the law that they're referring to, you know, it was Tony Blair's government that brought the European Court, the, the European legislation in, in in human rights into British law. This is British law at the moment. So I think it's very easy to blame European courts and again try and weaponize that. But that's not the issue that we've got here. We need to, I think, look at the real 
real problems of the figures in terms of the legal migration and the numbers in the backlog. And so I think, you know, and that, that's, I think, what we need to tackle. And so far, the Conservative government have proven they have been in power for 13 years. They've shown that they're completely incapable of doing that. Um, and they're taking the British people for fools. And at the same time, like I said, that that actually harms the genuine asylum seekers and the people that need our help. It really does. Ben, I mean, do you have any yeah. faith in a change of the law in terms of uh, legislation? Because nothing else has worked. Well, I, I mean, I, I, that, this is on illegal migration. I mean, the, you only need to change the law or pass laws for dealing with illegal migration if you see its control through deportation. Mm. But the point I've been making for many years, as you know, Mike, is that deportation is what you do when border control has failed. Yes. The problem is we've got no border control. Border force doesn't seek even to try to stop these boats. Mm. The Navy has given up mm. on the channel. The channel used to be a mechanism by which the United Kingdom was protected yes. from assault by Europe. Right. And now it's become by our people point in of, boats. By people in boats. Yeah. In, you know, all the way back to 1588. And, um, and now it's become our Achilles heel because we don't have the political will to challenge those people who have willfully entered dinghies, set, set, I was going to say set sail and not setting sail, again, under motor, yeah. from France to our British territorial waters. They make the 12 and a half mile journey. And then we don't have the courage to stop them and say, please go back to France. But I want to make another point to Sir Geoffrey, if I may, which is that it's all well and good talking about illegal migration, which of course must be nil. But the net legal migration of which we have as a country mm. complete control is, as it appears to be, out of control. And that's because the uh, skill-based immigration system that was adopted by Pretty is being implemented based on a base salary of £26,000 a year. That is about 25% less than the median wage in the UK. Mm. So we are, instead of importing skill labour or skills that we lack in the United Kingdom which would help our economy, which might be contributory at a high intellectual level to the United Kingdom, uh, we're actually just inculcating a third world economic model in a first world country. But, and that, Sir Geoffrey, if I may point this question to you, is entirely in your government's control. But it seems that the Conservative Party is not willing or able to take control of what it has all the legislation in place to do. Sir Geoffrey. Well, there are a number of, po there are a number of points there. First thing is that if you've got to start deporting somebody, the system has failed because they shouldn't have come here in the first place. And as you say, that re revolves around cutting down the number of boats coming into this country. And before we get too pessimistic, there have been some successes. 80% um, odd of the Albanians are going back because we've got a repatriation agreement. Uh, whether we like it or not, France is stopping some of the migrants, but there's a long way to go. And what you're saying is, basically, we need to get our systems right. The whole of our systems are far too complicated. It takes too long. Some of the poor uh, Home Office people trying to adjudicate on these um, claims for uh, uh, to remain here, they only do one a day because the system is so complicated. We need to simplify them. We need to get enough people doing uh, these uh, assessments. There's still a backlog of 70 or 80,000 uh, people out there waiting to, to see whether their claim is going to, to remain in this country is going to be, be up, upheld or not. 
we need to we need to do that. And as you say, we need this economic test to be at a, a more realistic level so that the people we want in this country, the point I was making earlier, are the people that we need to be here, the people who are actually going to benefit our country and benefit our economy. Yes. And I entirely agree with but that. But we've had many Home Secretaries, haven't we, um, Sir Geoffrey, who have promised that they're going to be the one that fixes it. And there's a reason why they can't fix it. It's the bloody Home Office, isn't it? And I'm perfectly willing to give the government a, a, a bit of slack uh, up to a point. But I don't know whether Boris Johnson really believed in stopping immigration. I don't think he did. I think Rishi Sunak would like to, but I don't think he knows how. But the real problem, surely, is the Home Office, which is not fit for purpose and should be ripped asunder and set up again with people who know what they're doing. Well, Mike, you're, you're absolutely right. And, it, and you use the, the phrase not fit for purpose. If you remember, it was the Labour Home Secretary, John Reid, in the 90s, was. who said the Home Office is not fit for purpose. So what I would do with the Home Office is I would split it into two. I would split off the immigration bit from the sort of crime and all the rest of it and get somebody in charge of the crime bit and look at the legislation, look at our systems and try and see if we can make it work. And I, I do accept the criticism. We've been in power and we've presided over a system where the number of people legally coming to this country has got greater and greater. Having said one thing about the figures this year, uh, we have taken in quite a large number of Ukrainians and we have taken in quite a large number of Hong Kong overseas nationals. And I think that probably most people would um, have said that that was the right thing to do. But without that, the rest of the, le the legal migration coming into this country is too high. Exactly right. And it's going up. And that's the problem, because they're all staying for longer than they should. But listen, Sir Geoffrey Clifford-Brown, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Um, ben Habib, uh, thank you as well. You. Um, David, hey, let me give you the final word. I mean, is there any way that you can see that before the next election, even if it's in May or whether it's in October of next year, um, I have to ask you to be quick on this, any way you see the boats being stopped? Um, in short, no. I think it's going to get worse. Um, and right. you, the, that's as short as I get it. <laughs> it's going to get <laughs> no, worse. No, listen, I mean, I appreciate your candour. Thank you very much indeed. It drives you insane, doesn't it? How can we have had all of these Home Secretaries doing all of these things, promising all of this stuff, and not only has it not worked... It's got bloody worse. You're watching The Independent <laughs> Republic of Mike Graham. Stay tuned. My head might explode. We'll bring you the latest on what happened on the ground uh, in Gaza. We'll find out if a true deal is anywhere near to save the hostages. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on Talk TV. Negotiations have been underway today between Israel and Hamas in a bid to release 50 hostages, mostly women and children, in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. The US says there's a tentative deal to secure the release on its way. Here's what President Biden had to say. My team has been in the region shuttling, shuttling uh, between the capitals. We, uh, we're now very close, very close. Uh, we could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. But I don't want to get into, into the details of things because nothing is done until it's done. And uh, when we have more to say, we will. But things are looking good at the moment. President Biden there saying when there is more to say, they will have more to say. So we'll bring you that as soon as it happens, if it does happen. Um, also, we should mention Susan Sarandon. You might remember her, uh, veteran Hollywood actress. She's done what an awful lot of people in Hollywood have been doing, uh, which is basically appearing uh, to tweet 
and make statements which are possibly considered uh, pro-Palestinian. She was at a recent pro-Palestinian rally in New York City uh, where she said, there are a lot of people afraid of being Jewish at this time and they're getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country. Uh, she also went on to repost a pro-Palestinian post on X from Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who's been criticised recently uh, for his anti-Semitic remarks. She's now been dropped by the United Talent Agency as a client, um, which shows you just how deep this particular dispute, this particular war is going. Um, to find out what's going on on the ground, um, let's talk to some journalists there. We're joined by journalist Gareth Brown and by The Sun's Robin Perry. Uh, welcome to you both. Robin, let me start with you. You've got a piece um, in The Sun tomorrow morning um, about the hostages. On the brink of freedom is what it says. Um, hostage deal thought to be coming uh, to some kind of um, um, hopeful solution. What, do you, what can you tell us? Yeah, it does. It does appear that there is an agreement there all day long. All sides, America, Israel, and Hamas, have been saying that the deal is just about there, and it appears that they have been discussing it. The Israel, Israeli cabinet have been discussing it all night long. There's been no official um, comments yet made by um, Benjamin Netanyahu, but it does appear that that deal will um, come to pass in the next day or so. Possibly some official comment tonight or certainly in the morning is expected. Yes, it looks that way, doesn't it? Let's talk um, uh, to Gareth. Gareth, I know that you're uh, a veteran of, of that part of the world. You've been watching it for, for many years. I know you've done a really interesting interview recently with um, what some people are saying um, in the, sort of, uh, in the UAE and, and that part of, of, of the Gulf about the future for, uh, for, for Gaza and what happens after all of this. I mean, what's your take on, on where Hamas is at the moment? Are they, like the Americans saying, um, negotiating because they feel they need to or are they, like Israel saying, negotiating because they want uh, Israel's attacks to stop? I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think if you look at the last kind of 10 or 15 years, but for Hamas, priority has always been... Uh, getting Palestinian prisoners released from Israeli jails. That's, that's, you know, in various rounds of conflict, that's always been kind of right at the top of their priority list. And it looks like in in this deal, they are going to get, you know, perhaps 150 or even more Palestinian women and children who are who are held in Israeli prisons free. Um, and that's a massive victory for them. Uh, you know, it, it does does massive things for their their credentials on the Palestinian street, not just in Gaza, in the occupied West Bank, in East Jerusalem. Um, so I think that's probably high up on the priority list. Um, you know, since the, the attacks on October 7th, the, the bombardment on, on Gaza has been intense. They've, you know, for sure they're, they're becoming exhausted militarily. So undoubtedly they could probably do with a couple of days, days break, which, which uh, looks like this ceasefire is going to allow. So I think it's probably a combination of both things. I don't think we can say definitively that it's one thing or another. Right. And Qatar's obviously playing a huge part in all of this. Um, how huge will their part be, you know, afterwards, do you think? Massive. I mean, publicly, the, the kind of Qatari role is quite controversial, but, you know, we have to remember that they host this, this, this political office of Hamas at the request of the US. That was something about a decade ago that the US asked them to do it and and now it's proving a really important back channel actually because it's not really clear how if you didn't have the Qataris um in place you could you could kind of be having these talks definitely Doha is doing a lot of the 
the heavy lifting when it comes to, you know, shuttling between the Israelis and, and, and the Americans um, and even the Egyptians. You know, we've seen the head of Mossad going out to Qatar. We've seen senior U.S. officials, US officials going to Qatar. Um, it seems like this ceasefire, this, this prisoner swap will be the first of several, you know, if, if things go to plan. We're only talking about 50. That's, you know, that's a fraction of the total hostages uh, being held by uh, Hamas at the minute, and Hamas and other armed groups in, in Gaza, of course. So it's, it's, it's interesting that this is happening now, but it's also a possible pathway to, to bigger uh, exchanges of, of, of hostages, of prisoners, to a bigger ceasefire. You know, this to me is the obvious route, route to kind of, you know, a broader cessation of hostilities. So it's important now for the, for the 50 or so people who are, who are going to uh, likely be released uh, in the coming days, but it's important what it means for the conflict going forwards. And Robin, just coming back to you, I mean, we've seen lots of horrible footage over the course of the last week or so from that day on October the 7th that we hadn't seen before, you know, the, 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 the shooting of innocent civilians at point-blank range, in some cases at that music festival uh, in the kibbutz. We've also seen um, footage from inside one of the hospitals of what looks like hostages being sort of dragged around and pushed about. But so far, from what we understand, um, Hamas have refused to actually pr show proof of life. So we don't really know how many of these hostages might even still be alive. Absolutely. I mean, when I was in Israel um, a couple of weeks ago, um, we spoke to a lot of the hostage families. Um, they, they'd had no communication whatsoever. The, the only proof of life they were getting were um, postings on Telegram by Hamas fighters showing uh, different numbers of different hostages in these tunnels underneath Gaza. And um, once the hostages have been taken into Gaza, that, that was it, there was no more communication. And it was, um, one, one good example is uh, the case of Emily Hand, the eight-year-old girl who had her ninth birthday in Gaza on Friday. I, I interviewed her father, Tom, and initially they thought that she'd been killed. And it was th only three weeks later, uh, they got um, official news from the Israelis that she hadn't been killed, that she was alive and had been taken hostage. But there wasn't a positive um, confirmation that she was alive. There was just a lack of confirmation that she was dead. There was no there was no blood in the house. There was no body found. And the, the mobile phones that belonged to a friend that she was with and the friend's family had been traced to Gaza. So it's, it's almost certain that she is alive. But like all of the other hostages, there is no positive proof of life. And, and coming back to you, Gareth, um, just looking at around the region, you know, you've got Lebanon to the north, you've got the, the complication of Iran. We were talking yesterday on the show about the complication of Russia actually bringing, you know, some, something to the party as well in the Middle East. I mean, is it even... I mean, it's so complicated, this, isn't it? I mean, even if they do get a ceasefire of some kind, if they do release some hostages... I mean, I, I, mean, I, I can't see any way really forward, and I know, you know, you know a lot more about this than I do, but, I mean, will, will, will anybody in the Arab world who supports Palestine support a kind of anything like a two-state solution? I mean, this is the interesting question. I mean, I mean, I think undoubtedly the issue of, you know, the Palestinian issue is back on the table and, and, and you know, people are talking about it. We're, we're talking about it now and it's, it's really shot back up the international agenda. I think, um, you know, the last... You know, in recent years, there's been a real stagnation in the peace process. Um, the Israelis and the Palestinians haven't even been speaking to each other. They haven't even been discussing the possibilities of a, of a two-state solution. 
So, you know, what Hamas did on October the 7th has, has completely changed that. And everyone is talking about that. Now, we're in a, a very dynamic situation. As you say, we've not only got the fighting in Gaza, but, you know, let's look on the northern border. Uh, you know, the, with, with, we have Hezbollah, you know, who, who are, who are a, a very, very uh, powerful force in, in South Lebanon or in, in Lebanon more generally. And we're seeing this kind of constant tit for tat. You know, people are, people are dying on, on the northern border um, on a daily basis at the minute. And that could easily spiral. I think the question is, everything is up in the air. Everything is very dynamic in what has actually been a, a very stagnant, uh, you know, lack of peace process, let's say. But now we've got a situation where um, we've got a situation where, well, some people are saying the optimists are saying perhaps this is an opportunity to kind of rejuvenate the peace process. That's the sort of language we're getting from from the Americans. Even Saudi Arabia is talking about this, you know, a, a revitalization of this this peace process. But it's how do you capitalize on things politically? How do you how do you turn this dynamism, everything changing into a, a political track that can bring about a kind of a political or a peaceful solution. Yeah, I mean, it is like a sort of multi-bilingual and multi-dimensional game of Jenga uh, with terrible, terrible consequences. Gareth Brown, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and Robbie Perry as well from The Sun, really appreciate it. Um, lots of coverage, of course, in the papers tomorrow. We'll bring you all of that uh, when we look at those papers coming up in the next hour right here uh, on Talk TV. You're watching uh, The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Get in touch because we want to take your calls. Uh, also, familiar faces from the pandemic have been dishing the dirt on our politicians they're saying Rishi Sunak wanted to let people die you've got to watch it Welcome back to the Independent Republic of me, Mike Graham. Professor Sir Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer for England, was in the firing line today as he provided evidence to the COVID inquiry admitting that ministers' insistence they were following the science became a millstone around their necks that blurred the distinction between technical advice and political decisions. Here's what else he had to say about lockdowns. Take a listen. We essentially had two different things we were trying to balance. The risk of going too early in which case you get all the damages from this with actually fairly minimal impact on the epidemic, and the risk of going too late, in which case you get all the problems of the pandemic running away. Now, as we more, I'm sure, come on to, my view is, with the benefit of hindsight, we went a bit too late on the first uh, wave. No kidding, Sherlock. Uh, we could call him that, if you like. We can't say the other word. Joining me to delve into the day's proceedings is the incomparable Molly Kingsley uh, from Us For Them. Um, evening, Molly. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Mike? Yeah, I'm looking forward to Plank of the Week this week because I'm going to reunite, I think, Messrs Valance and Witty, um, the two kind of flankers every time there was one of those dreadful um, uh, speeches being made and very terrible um, press conferences every single day, like five o'clock, we all watched it and thought... What are these guys talking about? And it turns out um, that not only could they not explain what they wanted to say to Boris Johnson, not only could they actually not figure out what to do, um, but in, in one day, at one point yesterday, Valence said, I'm not an expert. I'm going, really? You should have told us that a bit earlier. <laughs> well, it sounds like actually they didn't get on that well themselves, which no. is surprising because, you know, they did present quite a unified front and actually the evidence of the last few days suggests there were more disagreements than perhaps we knew about.
Yeah, I think that's right. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all a bit um, ridiculous. You and I have spoken about this COVID inquiry before. You know, we've had that bit where Dominic Cummings turns up and basically tells everybody um, their fortune and swears an awful lot. Uh, he gets read out lots of WhatsApp conversations that he's had where he basically doesn't think anybody's any good at anything, despite the fact that it's probably down to him that some of them are there. Uh, this week, we've had the two sort of chief medical guys more or less admitting they didn't really know how bad COVID was. But what they haven't said is that they made some mistakes in issuing some of the orders that they, that they said. I mean, you've got Witty there saying, oh, we probably uh, locked down too late. Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're really getting any closer to the key question that many of us would like answered or asked even actually, you know, did lockdowns work and crucially did benefits outweigh the harms? And I think many of us suspect the answer to that is no. But it's really evident that the inquiry is in many ways repeating actually the same failing of the response itself, which is seeing everything through this very narrow epidemiological lens. And I think we would like, you know, impacts on the vulnerable, on children, on education, on the economy, wider, wider societal aspects to be taken into account. And we just don't see any evidence of that so far in this inquiry. No, let's have another look at what Witty said today. When it initially happened, remembering that our job was to get science into government, thought, oh, this is a good thing, government is recognising that science is, uh, is important. It Very soon we realised it was a millstone around our necks and didn't help government either. A millstone around our necks. Um, I mean, how many times did you hear following the science? And as somebody pointed out today, what about all those graphs that him and um, uh, Valence put up, which were actually doctored, you know, to look worse than they actually were? I mean, nobody's even... Yeah, I, don't I, mean, know, I don't know who these lawyers are, but, I mean, I could literally get my 18-year-old, 19-year-old son to do a better job of quizzing these characters. Yeah, the questioning has been interesting. I mean, I think, you know, we had yesterday Patrick Valance. Obviously, he... Um, do you remember those dodgy charts of doom? Yeah. In they were yeah, forward, and they sort of they? they forgot to start them earlier when it would look like actually what was happening now wasn't so bad. Yeah, and I think I think there's been very light touch um, questioning around some of the key uh, modelling assumptions, both Valance's chart and, of course, we had Neil Ferguson in his Imperial College modelling, which in many ways set the tone for the whole pandemic, and he got off incredibly lightly given how wrong his model was, catastrophically wrong, I think many of us would say. And I think, you know, there are some interesting things that have come out of Witty's testimony today. And it, it, the one overriding impression that I had was perhaps unlike Valance yesterday, Witty appears very conscious of the harms that lockdown was going to unleash on society. And to be fair to him, you do get the impression he was genuinely concerned about that. And what was interesting in today's testimony is what very clearly came across from the council is that this was a you know a morally culpable position for witty to have taken so you know he was called the delayer at various points because he had been worried about you know going into lockdown too quickly and i thought that was and i never thought i'd say this mike but i thought that was actually quite a courageous viewpoint for witty to have taken given given the line of questioning of the yeah. inquiry but shouldn't there also be questioning about the harms that were done to other people not just to those who might get COVID and who might die. I mean, we're now being told that, you know, Rishi Sunak wanted uh, to say that he didn't mind if certain people died. I don't think that's the point. Surely the point is, 
Was it worth wrecking the health service for? Was it worth the mental health problems you were creating for people by sending them all to home to work? And was it worth shutting down all the schools, which you're interested in, um, mostly, um, to, to do all sorts of harm to our children? Yeah, I think absolutely that should be, be, be being asked, and it isn't. And I think the other thing... Well, there's many other things that should be being asked, aren't there, Mike? But I think one of them should be, why is there so much focus on harm from the virus? It's almost as if this, this has become the all-consuming obsession with the inquiry. You know, how did we stop? How do we stop the, inquiry, uh, the virus next time? How do we make sure we lock down sooner, harder, faster? And actually, you know, there's the balancing of harms that should be being considered. And there's also really serious governance and ethical questions that we have not heard a single word on from this inquiry. So, you know, you can imagine um, hard lockdowns, maybe suppressing a virus, but at what cost? You know, what human rights, what ethical boundaries do we trample over in doing that? And there's not been a word on that. And I just find that astonishing for an inquiry that is meant to be coming to a view on whether this was an appropriate course of action. Exactly right. And we've got uh, the accountability deficit to mention. I'm just going to mention it because we're nearly out of time. This is your new book, uh, Molly Kingsley, Arabella Skinner and Ben Kingsley. Uh, the accountability deficit, how ministers and officials evaded accountability, misled the public and violated democracy during the pandemic. So one for people uh, who are not satisfied with some of the questioning and some of the answers they're hearing uh, can go and get that book, right? Thank you, Mike. Yeah, exactly. And I think really what we're trying to do is ask and to an extent answer, at least from what we can see from public records, some of the questions the inquiry isn't. And the book is based on probably about eight months now of really meticulous and quite painful research. Mm. I'm sure. Molly, good to talk to you. We'll get you in soon uh, to do more about that particular book and I'm sure we'll be listening you, to Mike. more uh, Cobleros from the powers that be uh, at the uh, inquiry for some weeks to come. Uh, coming up, of course, uh, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's the Chancellor's big day tomorrow. I'll tell you what I wanted to do in my manifesto. But I also want to speak to you. Your voice, my thoughts. Big bang. Let's do it. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. Jeremy Hunt has never been a particularly popular bloke. Whenever he's tried to become leader of his own party, he's failed miserably, losing to Boris Johnson in 2019 and ducking out early in 2022 when he couldn't even get 20 votes to stay on the ballot. Now he's the Chancellor of the Exchequer only because he arrived in Downing Street by default when Kwasi Kwarteng got the heave-ho. And he's only been there for just over a year. Tomorrow, uh, Hunt will be the most powerful man in the country, however. Why? Because he will hold all of our futures in his hands. Forget about the billions the government is borrowing. Forget what they tell you about inflation and how they've successfully halved it. Instead, remember these words. Here's what we want you to do, Jeremy. Number one, cut income tax for the hardest working people in the country. That means cutting out tax for the lowest earners and setting a new threshold at £20,000. No income tax below that figure. Number two, cut VAT back to 15% so that everyday spending is less of a burden. Number three, freeze all payments to illegal migrant hotels immediately and make the Home Office find savings. Number four, reduce taxes on small businesses, including corporation tax and dividend tax to enable them to grow and invest. And number five, my favourite, freeze all MP salaries for the next five years. That is my five-point plan for the success of the country and the success of the Conservative Party at the next election.
Be brave, Mr Hunt. The Independent Republic is watching. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, and we're going to try and get better at taking more of your calls. But John is first up in Newcastle. John, a very good evening to you. And good evening to you, Mike, on this, our own fantasy island. Yes. What do you uh, want to say? If you, if you look at uh, Rwanda, um, there's a chap being interviewed the other day on television, and it wasn't BBC because I'm only made to pay for that. I don't watch it. Right. That's but, good. However, Rwanda, and he said the cost of sending one person to Rwanda is equivalent to having them here in an average yes. hotel for 12 You told years. me this the other night, I think, didn't you? Oh, I did. Maybe I did. Yeah. Uh, let's, get, let's get to something else then. Go on. Um, you uh, want France uh, to take more migrants, don't you? Yeah. No, no. Uh, basically, France. Now, is France a war-torn country? No. no. Uh, is it civil war? No. no. So why can't we send them back to France from whence they came? Very good question. We can send them back to France, we just don't seem to have the capability to do so. John, it's a very good point and well made. Thank you very much for making it. We'll take more of your calls coming up uh, in the next hour. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, we will, of course, uh, be talking about a great many things, including councils raking in a billion pounds a year in parking fees. And also, we'll tell you what tomorrow's news is before anyone else. Don't move an inch. This is Talk TV. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and we're on your smart speaker as well. Tonight, the release of hostages seized by Hamas could be approved by the Israeli government within hours, we're told, of a hostage deal being agreed. And Nicola Bully police failings led to an explosion of speculation. An independent review has concluded. And over in Iceland, they're bracing still for a possible volcanic eruption as the rest of Europe watches on in case of a repeat of that 2010 volcanic ash cloud.
And remember, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well. 0344-499-1000. Calls will cost you at the national rate. There's probably never been a worse time to drive a car. If you're not paying through the nose for fuel at the pumps or getting fined for driving at 21 miles an hour or possibly being shouted at by some eco-nutter about killing the planet, you might just be trying to get your children to school or parking to do some business in your local city or town. All in all, drivers are the most put-upon, most taxed and most unpopular people in this country when it comes to the powers that be. And none of those powers is more greedy than local authorities. Tonight, thanks to the Daily Telegraph, we can tell you just how much your local council is breaking in to parking fees where you live and work. And it's a staggering amount, £1 billion this year alone. Parking spaces are getting more expensive and they're getting harder to find. So it will come as no surprise to know that much of the cash is made in London. Westminster Council collected 72 million quid in the last year alone. But it's also a nationwide racket. Nottingham cashed into the tune of nearly £15 million of your money. Manchester got £13 million. Newcastle rakes in £9.5 million. And get this, Leeds, Sheffield, Canterbury and Exeter all cleared more than five million quid. The big question for me is what the hell are they doing with the money? Answers on a postcard. Now, later on the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at all the front pages with our panel. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. Uh, and it's that terrible, terrible story that emerged later uh, on uh, in the afternoon. Uh, and it's about these four young men uh, who went on a camping trip and unfortunately didn't come home. They were found dead in a submerged car uh, over in uh, Wales. Police found the Ford Fiesta upside down, partially submerged. Um, Harvey Owen, thought to be celebrating his birthday this month, was heading to Snowdonia with his pals Jevon Hurst, Will Henderson and Hugo Morris. Police said one of the lads was 16, two boys were 17 and one was 18. Absolutely awful, tragic story. I imagine that will be on quite a few of the front pages uh, that we bring you in the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so. Uh, don't forget, you can still call us as well, 0344 499 Moving on, though, Lancashire police have drawn heavy criticism in an independent review of the force's handling of another tragic disappearance, Nicola Bully. Uh, Nicola's body was found two weeks after she went missing, and it was around then the police revealed her struggles with alcoholism and the menopause an action the review deemed completely unnecessary. Here's what the lead review of the case, CEO of the College of Policing, Andy Marsh, had to say. I want to start by saying that we found the police investigation and search to have been well conducted by Lancashire Constabulary. We spoke to many officers and police staff and volunteers who worked on this investigation and their dedication and commitment was clear to see. They demonstrated the very best of policing. I'm now joined by former Detective Chief Inspector Simon Harding. Simon, welcome uh, to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. What are your thoughts on, on this review? I suspect that, like me, um, there's nothing particularly surprising here. No, I don't think there's anything surprising. I think that um, the, some of the interesting parts that come out of this are that the family themselves ha uh, did not take part in the review. They, they declined. It says due to personal reasons. Um, we don't know why that is. Mm. Um, they picked out quite a few points that um, they were obviously impressed with that Lancashire Police dealt with in terms of the resourcing and the way that um, certain parts were dealt with. But they also picked on those points that, that we talked about back in February, which 
were really that they should have put cordons in place. It would have helped with a number of uh, parts of the investigation um, that they perhaps, even though they worked on this hypothesis, and there's a little bit of a, a cross here in the, in the report where it talks about, you know, that the working hypothesis is correct. But they also then say that perhaps they should have considered um, perhaps not saying that because of the fact that they hadn't cleared all lines of a hypothesis, i.e. that she was taken by a third party. So um, there's 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 bits, good bits and bad bits. Yeah. I mean, the problem will be whether the police have actually learned from that terrible um, investigation that they ran, learned anything at all uh, as to whether they should replace or move people around. Do you know whether or not any of that's happened ahead of the of the publication of this report? Oh, I think I think um, I think in terms of in terms of the the investigation, I think what you what you do see is that um, you know there's going to be no misconduct issues or anything like that at all. You look at the um, the learning which they're talking about all police forces can learn from, but these these are quite unusual circumstances. You know the way in which she went missing, the, the public uh, media frenzy around her going missing was was unprecedented, really. And, you know, you only saw that before in, in things like the Sarah Everard case. And, um, you know, so so realistically, I think it's it's very difficult to say that you'll see something like this again. But, you know, this this is this is a different kind of uh, response. You know, the media response and the, the armchair detectives, as they call them, turning up at the scene, um, you know, treating it like a bit of a circus, you know, made it a really, very unusual case for what they're saying is actually quite... Um, simplified missing persons inquiry. It was a very odd time, wasn't it? Because I don't think... I, mean, I certainly hadn't seen anything like it, and I remember talking to you and, and listening to you on Talk TV at the time, talking about, you know, the various methods of, of searching and, and how there was a, uh, another character who, who seemed to have been involved in other searches. People wanted to talk about this case and they wanted to make videos of themselves on the riverbank. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything like it since, really. No, and I don't think, you know, I hope you don't see it again. I mean, I do think that one of the problems, and they have highlighted it in the review, that, you know, this this is caused by the fact that certain decisions made at the beginning of that investigation over the, even over the next few days, the early stages, um, weren't right. And, and, and it's pointed out that there, there should have been a cordon in place. Now, you know, irrespective of what you believe has happened and what your working hypothesis might be at the time, you know, you, you, you've got to look at what else could, could happen inside your scene. So when you haven't ruled out everybody, uh, sorry, when you haven't ruled out a third party involvement, you need to shut that scene up. And that is a, it's a huge scene, mm. and, but it still needed to be done. And I think the, the mismanagement, unfortunately, of the crime scene itself, and of course, you know, they'll, they'll have a go at me for saying it's a crime scene, but it was a potential crime scene at the time before you knew everything that had happened. It should have been dealt with differently. It should have been, had a huge cordon to stop people coming in. And it gives you then the ability to investigate. It gives you the ability to deal with your uh, your searches, everything else that you need to do without that interference that, that unfortunately, the interference and the media interference and the, and the public interference completely overwhelmed the investigation. I mean, is there a case for a kind of um, group... A boss of some kind when it comes to handling press and when it comes to handling um, the public, if you like, you know, because sometimes you get a, a force or a police um, constabulary that's not simply not prepared for the focus of attention. You know, some of them may be, if it's metropolitan police, obviously very different from uh, from perhaps a smaller force. I mean, is there is there is there some case to, to be made for that so that you could actually, if you were running 
a particular police organisation, you could call on those people to say, well, how do, what do we do here? Well, that, that is in place, believe it or not. I mean, we do have, you know, if I was a, an SIO for, for some of the cases in London that I dealt with, you know, if, if there was a particularly high uh, media interest, um, the family do want to see that investigator out there because that's the person they relate to. But sometimes you have to bring in a talking head, so to speak, because there might be a wider point to make around reassurance for the public. Um, you know, and, and quite often that's why you see senior officers who aren't necessarily directly involved in the investigation. But And also you have um, what are called gold groups, and they, they are where you have meetings with uh, the officer who's investigating and then the local community um, independent advisory groups, they're called, who come in and talk about the location, talk about people within that community, so that your messaging is 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 directly uh, to those people and is is right. And I think, you know, that one of the biggest uh, criticisms there's been is, is the the media response and how they dealt with the family and how the family's media response and the police's media response and and that search independent search team that came in there there separated media all became so muddled that, that it caused so many problems for the investigation because even the the the, the dress and uh, and the and the clothes that were being worn by some of the police officers was criticized wasn't it well i mean I, the, the way that she was scrutinized around what she was wearing is is, is wrong it, you know 100% wrong you know why are you focusing on that it's ridiculous you know as far as i was concerned she looks smart She's a very well-respected person, but perhaps the advice she was getting and, and this particular case was unusual to her as it would have been to a number of people. You know, I, I, I think that's, that's you know, if you say colloquially out of order, really, how she was treated in that, because it took away from what was really important, which was finding Nicola at the time. So, you know, yes, they will look at everything and, and come up with a, a future strategies to help Lancashire and you know give advice to other police forces but it was it was so unusual um and it was you know so huge for what you would say is like a provincial force essentially that yeah. that um you know they just got completely overwhelmed yeah and so do you think overall this report will be helpful well i mean for you know it's 140 odd pages long i think um you know there's there's bits in it which will be there's bits which officers with experience, we'll say, well, we do that anyway. Um, you know, so that's probably a local force problem and learning. Um, you know, the way that uh, uh, certain SIOs, you know, senior officers who uh, investigate homicides and, and things like high-risk missing persons will look and say, well, I would do that anyway. So I'm not sure that all of it will be um, helpful, but whatever is helpful should be adopted. Um, looked at in terms of being... You know, a metropolitan kind of problem in the in the big cities, or those that might face those kind of uh, different investigations they've never faced before in in the sort of outer provincial forces. And you know, let, let's hope we in in future we see a slightly more professional um, start to an investigation that stops these problems coming in. Absolutely right. Simon, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Harding there, uh, former uh, senior police officer. Uh, lots of you have been getting in touch because we've got plenty more to do uh, before we get to 11 o'clock. You can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 Let's go straight to the phones. Rosie uh, is in Belfast, wants to talk about Northern Ireland. Hi, Rosie. Hello there, Mike. It's lovely to actually speak to you. Yeah, good to talk to you too. Good evening. What do you want to say? Uh, 
Um, first of all, Mr. Harden was 100% right. Um, I was in healthcare 20 years, and then I went on done a criminology degree. He is 100% right. right. All these amateur sleuths. And that was just awful, wasn't it? I couldn't understand it, what the... It's like YouTube. Of, yeah. It's like these TikTok generations all think they can solve true crime, but no, it's a process, it's a theory. Right. It's, you know, no, exactly, exactly right. What's going um, on in Northern Ireland? Well, I'll tell you this. You were talking about MPs and this, not me, and it got me really aggravated because, yes. Mike, uh, I, I don't know why you know this. Well, you probably know we have no government. Right. Not right? for some time. Um, I mean, you've had one. Gov- I, uh, you've had the government for about a week, and then they broke it off again, didn't they? Yeah, I need medication that needs legislative through the government because through the government, you don't get the medication, right? The government's yeah. getting paid fully, and they're not meeting. They haven't stacked in about three years. Right. That's now, not that on. Billions of pounds. Yeah. Billions of pounds wasted, and even towards the tax year. April come to March, there's still so much money that needs to be spent, and right. it's really crucifying the people. Right. Um, it's not talked about much in your channel because I do understand. Right. Uh, well, who's supposed to get them and make them knock their heads together and actually start doing proper work together? Who's supposed to fix the Prime that? Minister and Rishi Sunak. Oh well, he's not doing it though. And uh, the premise or the secretary from Northern Ireland. Yeah. I don't, even, I don't know. He's changed so much. I don't even know who that is anymore. Years. Yeah, I don't even know I, who the I Secretary of State of Northern Ireland is. You used to have Handy Mandy and, and you used to have loads of people. Yeah. No, no I know. But that's a good point. I mean, it's an awful lot of waste of money um, to have people supposedly sitting in a second-tier government and not even bothering to meet up in it because they don't get on with each other. No, it's absolutely no, bonkers. We, ha- we haven't. It just is by about ten people. Ten people are stopping this government meet together. Right. The posture. And the thing is, it's having an effect on yeah, us as a community. I've had to have a career change and just, you know, leave the health, go where, where the money is now. And people are doing the same. They, they can't get stuff done quicker. Mm. Like, mm. remember the electricity grants was given us? Oh, yes. They, yeah. they didn't, they didn't, we were like... Six, seven months behind, but always Well, this is the trouble. Northern Ireland gets forgotten about a lot, doesn't it? Listen, I, I really appreciate your call, Rosie. Thank you very much indeed. Let's go to John uh, in West Lothian. wants to talk about pensions. Hi, John. Good evening, Mike. Evening, sir. What can I do for you? Well, um, I uh, listened with interest to your uh, points for uh, the Chancellor. Yes. Um, I think there's one point that you missed. Go on. Which is that, you know, people who have saved all their lives through the and being encouraged to take out private pensions. Yeah. So they do that to try not take money off the state, to, to be self-independent, whatever. Yeah. And then when they get their pension, they get taxed on it. Yes. Ludicrous. It, it seems absolutely ridiculous that you follow all the rules, you try to do everything right, you try to look after your family, you try not to be a drain on the state, yeah. and then you get taxed on it. It yes. just seems absolutely madness. And yet, you know, they're willing to do others 
strange thing, shall I say. Absolutely right. No, it's a very good point. I like it. Uh, I'll add that to the list. It won't be five points then, though, so maybe I'll do, it another, <laughs> I'll do another five tomorrow when he doesn't do the first five, and that'll be something else we could get onto him about. But listen, thank you very much indeed. Pensions are a very big area, actually, that people really do care about because you do. You save all your life. Uh, you hope that you'll be looked after in your old age. You're not by the state because they haven't got enough money to look after you. And if you get your own private pension, you shouldn't be paying tax on it. Because it's meant to be tax deferred and then you shouldn't be having to pay tax on it if it's no longer uh, part of an income and it's a pension. That's the point, isn't it? You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Stay where you are, though, because we're on Volcano Watch. Uh, first, though, Piers Morgan's got an exclusive interview with Hollywood legend Sean Penn. Coming up is a sneak peek. You dedicate the film to Ukrainian fighter pilot known as Juice. He was the leader of the fabled Ghost of Kiev unit, which didn't actually exist in the way people thought, but he was an unbelievably good pilot, and he very sadly died three months ago yeah. in a training exercise. You see in the movie, you take him to see Top Gun Maverick. He's a real-life Top Gun. You saw it in Washington. We were lobbying for F-16 jets, um, and he's now one of the 100,000 Ukrainians who died in this war, um, including, I think, 13,000 civilians. Tell me about him for a moment. I mean, the impact he had on your life. He's a guy who believed he owed his country service. He's not, he was a, yeah, sort of personality-wise, the furthest thing you'd, you'd think from a military man and, and um, a beautiful spirit. Sad moment for you. Yeah. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, over in Iceland, authorities remain on alert as the likelihood of an eruption remains pretty high. Uh, our intrepid correspondent, Nick Ellaby, is on the ground. And he's spoken to Iceland's Minister of Culture and Business Affairs as authorities formulate some kind of national response. We are, of course, always watching every development that are taking place. I mean, Iceland, as you know, it's a, you know, a volcanic activity is more likely here than, you know, on the mainland Europe. But we've been able, throughout uh, both uh, centuries and decades, to, we've been able to address these. And Iceland is, uh, uh, we have a high GDP per capita, we have a successful economy, so it's our obligation to take care of uh, the individuals and be, you know, thinking about the future, so how we can address these uh, challenges that we have in this beautiful country. It is a beautiful country. We've got lots of people who might be watching who are thinking, you know, should I visit or not? What would you say to, to people in the rest of Europe who are maybe concerned about coming here? Absolutely. I mean, we put safety first. We are very good at communicating what's going on. And there are so many beautiful places that you, you can see. We are also very rich uh, in culture. I mean, people love Iceland. I mean, I've been there. I think it's a great place. But it's a bit worrying about this ash cloud as well, especially if you're trying to go anywhere. We'll see. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here uh, on Talk TV. And now it's time for this. The World of Work. It's not been a great week for the BBC, again, or the biased broadcasting corporations, as we come to know it. Today, they appear to have outdone themselves with a the claim that the Great Plague of 1348 was, in fact, racist. To be fair, it's not the BBC that came up with this idea, it's the Woke Museum of London, which decided that this entirely pointless piece of information was actually worth publishing. 
Of course, the BBC didn't question it, just slammed it straight onto their website as if it were a fact. Now, here's how it goes. Apparently, black women were most likely to die from the plague in our capital. And this they have based on the findings of 145 bodies from three cemeteries. Despite that we know over 35,000 people died in the two-year outbreak of the deadly disease. They're also claiming it was known as the Great Pestilence, which it never was when I was learning about it. It was called the Black Death. And maybe that's the clue. It was passed on by fleas and rats and people coughing on one another. Symptoms included fever, fatigue, sometimes large swellings would appear, and bodies would also discolour after death. To make out that somehow this dreadful blight on London was worse for black women and half the population died, simply woke nonsense and politically correct cobblers. What chance have our children got learning our history if this is the best the Museum of London can do? That is the world of woke. The world of woke. I'm now joined uh, by my excellent panel, Deputy Political Editor for The Sun, Ryan Sobey, former Tory advisor, Leon Emerali, and uh, glamorously at the end, journalist and broadcaster, Emma Wolfe. Welcome to all of you. Um, thank you. We've got a lot of great stories to look at ahead of uh, the very exciting autumn statement, as Ryan Sobey's pointed out. But before we do anything, I want you to show this video first, because if you ever thought you were having a bad day, this is from the weekend. Um, this is unbelievable, right? A golfer in Dubai, Juste Luton, threw his club into a tree because he was so upset with the way he was playing. But then he actually tried to secure it back to the ground by throwing another club up and another club up, all three clubs getting stuck. He'd already been enduring a Sunday to forget at the DP World Tour Championship. And let's have a look at this video. It's absolutely unbelievable. Can you see that? Can you give me that? Jump up to a tree that he can't reach. Trying with a sign. I mean, you don't even have to play golf to know that this guy's an idiot, honestly. What is he doing? <laughs> he kicks his clubs. He has to carry on with three less clubs than he's got. And he ended up coming 48th out of 50. So there you go. So the lesson is if you're in a hole, stop digging. Right? He's obviously um, pretty teed off. Very good. I see what you did there. Um, listen, we've got so much to discuss. We've got the autumn statement coming up tomorrow. We've got Nicola Bully to talk about uh, and that story there. Um, we've also got, of course, all the latest things that have been going on. Net migration hitting 700,000. Parking fines particularly annoying to me. Mm. Um, but maybe we should kick off with the autumn statement. Worry, don't worry about um, what's in the paper yet, because no. I know you've got something in the sun. But, Ryan, I mean, are we going to be sitting there thinking, if only this was more interesting? I think we may be. I was speaking to some Tory MPs this evening and what they feel they actually might be being marched up the hill. Now, if they're being marched up the hill, mm. they expect the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, to deliver tomorrow. Right. So I think there's been a, a few days of uh, talking about tax cuts, yeah. but you can't just give a little bit on national insurance. It feels like they have to do a little bit more. Mm. And two or three weeks ago, they were talking about this autumn statement as being pretty drab yeah. and pretty boring. It just so happens that they had that Rwanda mm. um, judgment last week and things started ramping up when it came to tax cuts. Right. So you just wonder whether they've, they've dusted down a, f a few um, sort of spreadsheets and thought, well, perhaps we may be able to do that. We may be able to tax some, cut some taxes on national insurance. We may be able to help business out a little bit more. So you just wonder whether politically mm. they've made that astute judgment. Maybe. Emma, they're claiming that they've got the money now because inflation's come down because mm. they've halved it. And they, and found they haven't half there, have they? Yeah, the other day they found a couple of billion, didn't they, down the back of the sofa, yeah. and they realised actually they could do some tax cutting after all. 
But I mean, they're desperate. Nothing... They need to do something to turn this around in the next 12 months, and yeah. they are absolutely desperate to give people something. At the same time, as taking it all away from them as yeah. well, you know, because of course everyone's going to have their benefits cuts and all sort uh, cut and all right. sorts. So. But I mean, if you're going to cut people's benefits, you're going to have to fund that somehow, I suppose, as well, aren't you? Because you're supposed to get them back into work, mm. and you're going to hire a load of people from the working pensions department in order to take care of all the people that are now going to be working, yeah. who probably won't be paying tax very much anyway. Yeah. I mean, Leon, you've been in this situation as advisor, and what do you tell people to say? Do you tell them to say, don't say, we can't do it now? Because mm. that's what Rishi Sunak's been saying, isn't it? We yeah. can't do it all at once, he goes. I think in 13 years. I think he's trying to make the most, Mike, of the fact that actually the economic narrative is beginning to look a little bit more positive than yeah. it most recently was. And I think actually Liz Truss's mini budget that was obviously so disastrous was largely down to the timing of mm. it. You can't introduce tax cuts when inflation is rising, but now that inflation is levelling out, perhaps now is the right time. Mm. But the question politically is whether or not a year or so until the next general election, people are actually going to feel the benefit of those tax cuts coming in and whether or not that's enough to mm. vote Conservative next time round. So you can't go too early then, in other words? No, that's why, I think that's why Jeremy Hunt and uh, Rishi Sunak, I was at Rishi Sunak's speech on, on Monday. Um, yeah. they God, about... did you stay awake? Oh, I was there, <laughs> I was there. Yeah, I know, um, in the room you were. Yeah, no, he, he talks about this, this pathway and I think that's what he wants to do. So. You lay the groundwork now, and then you can do something mm. at, the, at, the, at the budget. But the trouble is, you don't want to look like it's a political gimmick. Yeah. You know, just a few months before a general right. election, that you do cut income tax this time. If it doesn't happen tomorrow, it could well happen right. next time. So you just have to make sure that you don't get accused of playing party politics with the nation's finances. Mm. Well, we'll talk about what's been proposed in some of the papers for tomorrow. But, but I mean, surely, Emma, they wouldn't be so cynical as to say, vote for us and we'll cut your tax. Because no. people wouldn't buy that, would they? No, they wouldn't do that, would they? Of course they wouldn't. They'd have to cut it It just feels utterly incoherent. And that speech on Monday, again, inexplicably a Prime Minister turning up at a, a school and talking about the, the you know, his, his um, economic plans just seems odd. Um, it was so boring and so monotone. It felt to me as though Rishi Sunak had one foot almost out of the door and had almost given up and was eyeing, you know, was asking him to t tidy up and clean up in his house in California. That he's accepted. I, I'm not sure that he's got the heart for it anymore, if he ever had it. So I think there's a sense of frustration because that speech was actually meant to be given last Wednesday, yes. on the day of the judgment. Right, yeah. So then the judgment comes out. They're like, well, I've written this speech. I want to tell everyone that right. I brought and down inflation. And I'm booked inflation. to go to the school in North London, so I'll do it there. <laughs> Uh, absolutely, yeah. I but, does that tell, but does that tell what you that? What the children thought? What's he talking yeah. about, fiscal drag? What is he talking and who about? Are all these National have insurance. turned up with him to sit and watch our classroom. <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of MPs there. Yeah. And obviously Jeremy Hunt turned up, Mel Stride. Mm. Well, I thought one, Downing Street didn't make this out to be a massive speech in advance. Mm. There was no pre-briefing of it. You know, if they really want to signpost that he's got big five new priorities, yeah, yeah. they should start. They should probably tell people and brief it into. Yeah, a few the days thing before. is, Ryan, I'm not sure we need five new priorities. Five more Because he's still working well, on his old, old priorities. What about the old ones that didn't? Those <laughs> pledges weren't important, but these five yeah. new pledges are. So oh, sorry, they're priorities. They're yeah. not pledges. Ten, now. ten pledges now that we've got so yeah. to hold account for. Yeah. Well, he's claiming now that he's got one of them, which is the inflation. But of course, he hasn't. To do with so it. one out of ten. Yeah, but or one out of five. One out of five becomes one out of ten when he asks another five. I mean, I've done five of my own tonight. You know, we'll see whether he does any of those, and then it'll be one out of fifteen that he hasn't done. <laughs> but I mean, the other thing about that delayed speech is, doesn't that prove that they were so badly advised about Rwanda that they genuinely thought they were going to win? But, they actually yeah. thought that the, 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 the Supreme Court was going to go, oh yeah, you can do that. I think you, you probably convinced yourself that you think in your, your own mind that you've got these arguments and they are going to win the, win the day. But that judgment was so comprehensive. Yeah. 
Nice to speaking to, again to people, backbenchers, members of the new Conservatives within an hour of, of, yeah. of, of that judgment. They were flabbergasted. Mm. They thought they would just have to say, I think it's now time for us to leave the European Convention of Human Rights. Yeah. You have to leave it nearly every single in, in international treaty almost. Yeah. So it is so comprehensive that the, the government really needed to come up with their plan B. But that probably won't work. Then you need a plan right. C. You've completely run out well, of time. But I was actually reading an interview with Michel Barnier the other day, who's now kind of reinvented himself as a kind of centre-right politician in France. And he's been talking about how the European Union has become way too powerful, uh, that you need to give back sovereignty to individual countries inside the EU, uh, and that, you know, the ECHR might not be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, Sunak should sign this guy up, because he's making a better case for, for leaving, you know, sort of migration control to individual countries than Sunak is. Yeah, and, you know, there was a part of me that thought when that ruling came in, maybe he'll call an election and make it a one-issue election around Rwanda, around immigration, and says, look, I need a majority for us to leave the, uh, the European Convention. Mm. I need to be able to do that. I don't think he's going to do it because it would have been a high-risk strategy. Yeah. But I think his best hope is to do that. But right. the question is, does Rishi Sunak strike us as a prime minister who will get tough on immigration. I don't think he's got the narrative around well, him that allows him to do that. Well, I, I, Emma, I was going to ask you. As a non-political ex-Tory advisor, I can't see this, this line about um, should we leave the ECHR as being like a vote winner on the doorstep. I think you could make have a general election around, around immigration. Yeah. It would become very, very nasty right. very, very quickly. But I think if you went to the people of this fine country and said, should we or should we not leave the ECHR? It's a bit like, you know, the border in the middle yeah. of the channel. Mm -hmm. It's just way, but it doesn't, way... But it doesn't have to become nasty. It only becomes nasty because the people who, who look, look at those... Look Brexit became. It didn't yeah. need to become nasty. Yeah but, it became, it didn't. yeah, but it became nasty because the people who wanted to stay in the European Union started characterising everyone who wanted tight controls on immigration as racist xenophobes, which they're not, you know. And the fact that Suella Braverman was treated so badly, Priti Patel was treated as badly as she was, even Rishi Sunak's been accused of it, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to have figures coming out on Thursday which are going to show legal migration has gone up yet again. And everybody told me, oh, that's not going to happen because it was only down to Ukraine and Hong Kong that we got 600,000 last year. Now it's going to go down to 300,000. Now it's going to go up to 700,000. That's going to hurt him, I think. Well, and when are we going to be at a million? I mean, really, it's out of control. Next year. And we need to have some kind of deal with European countries. I mean, they yeah. have problems, as, as Leon says, we, they have major problems with migration too. It's, it's a some far bigger issue than just Rishi and the small boats, which is one of the pledges that isn't yeah. a pledge anymore, of course. No. I think, I think yes, say, so one answer I think that the government seems to come up with, that if you raise the earning that uh, people need to come to this mm. country, Robert Jenrick the other day was talking about it bringing somewhere between 30 and £33,000. Um, but the trouble is you raise it that high, you have big problems with social care yeah. and other industries yeah. and sectors that, that need, need people to come here. Right. There's a bigger question at play here, I think, which is that we haven't got the skill set in this country to actually deliver what's required in the economy. And we yeah. saw that immediately after Brexit and the pandemic predominantly that had these labour shortages yeah. in pretty much every single sector. Mm. So the question is, do we either upskill those individually in the UK, those who aren't working at the moment, and I know Jeremy Hunt's going to say some of that tomorrow, I'm yeah. sure, or do we need to have an immigration policy that actually works for the country first, and then allows our infrastructure to keep up with it, allows our NHS school yeah. system to be able to keep keep up with the number of people that are coming in. Because I do believe 
immigration is good for the economy, but it needs to be controlled. In yeah, but not the kind of immigration well. we've got currently. The kind of, this kind of immigration where you invite people to come as students or, you know, on work visas, but they then stay longer than they're supposed and bring, to. And they get given permission to stay and bring dependents with them. Yeah. That's not like people coming in and going out. That's people coming in and staying. But the thing, and also, Leon, we could have the skill set. We could, but as Ryan says, we don't value those lower skilled, and I say that with quotation marks around it, because I don't think they're lower skilled at all, looking after our elderly, our vulnerable, looking after babies in nurseries, look at wiping the bottoms of people that are dying in hospital. I don't think that's low skilled at all. I think that's hard, hard, important work. But we don't pay those people anything. We pay them absolute peanuts. And so we end up having to get people in, because English... British kids say, well, I'm not doing that. Why would I go into social care when I'm only paid yeah. 15 grand a year? Exactly right. I think one of, so say, one of the other problems, we're trying to do all these trade deals mm. with, with countries around I the see world. we did one with Florida the other day. Florida, yeah. And, uh, we've that was a to... bit of left field. Yeah, no. <laughs> when are we doing Oklahoma? <laughs> we've done, <laughs> you know, we've done... I think they're working on it. <laughs> they got oil there. a civil servant fancied a trip to Miami. Yeah. Basically. We've done trade deals with seven states, actually. Really? Yeah. And, uh, but... Um, I think if you want to do deals with India and all, all these countries, you're going to have to offer something in return. Yeah. Visas. Right. But that's a problem because, you know, at some point or other, the tipping point comes and the visas that you're giving out actually outweigh uh, the trade that you're doing uh, because it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. Let's just look at some of the other stories in the papers. I know um, we were talking about Nicola Bully's story a bit earlier in this hour. Emma, I know you've got mm. uh, something to say about that. Damning report in The Sun, Nicola Cops in Dossier of Shame. It's hard to imagine anything worse than this police investigation, isn't it? It really was. And I know there was an unprecedented media interest and public interest yeah, in this case. it was weird, wasn't it? But the stuff that was coming out of the police, this isn't just kind of horrible speculation online and the kind of that information gap where everyone mm. on Twitter just starts, you know, spouting all this gossip and rumour. Yeah. Stuff that was coming from the police about potential alcohol issues. I don't even want to repeat them, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. That she was perimenopausal or going through the menopause. Utterly irrelevant. Deeply, deeply mm. intrusive. Yeah. Totally irrelevant. This is a missing woman. They're really inappropriate We were on well. a riverbank. Had she fallen in? Had she gone for a walk with her dog? Had she been taken? What on earth did that have to do with anything? Mm. And as a woman, I can tell you, that kind of... And I'm sure men have their, their issues too. But as a woman, those kind of medical... Uh, snippets of information mm. would make a woman feel extremely humiliated. I felt humiliated for her. Right, and for the family as well. Of course for the family. And the family apparently how didn't even necessary? take part. How was it allowed? Yeah. Where do we, you know, where do and we... And how can, start? I mean, a bit like all of these things, how do you make sure that the, no, no police organisation, force, whatever they call themselves the, these days, does that ever again? Does that again. They say the media narrative was lost at an early stage. This is about finding a yeah. missing woman. Right. It's not about the media narrative. I mean, I yes, I know the police have to communicate well with the media, but it went so... They it did so crossed a line. Yeah. It yeah. was absolutely clear. It was on that line of actually straying into entertainment, yeah. it felt like. It it was actually quite was. sickening, yeah. and you saw this. But also, it's very odd. It was a very odd scenario, wasn't it? Where these people, yeah, people coming from across the country mm. to think, film themselves on the riverbank. I've never seen anything like graceful. it. Really, I think not having putting out a lot of information or feeding the information to crime reporters that that, that, that you can do. Mm. That vacuum was then filled by these online trolls, yeah. and I think I think that's what happened. See, I'm old enough to remember the days when the police used to actually talk to proper journalists, and they would say that this is what we're working on but you can't publish it. And that system worked very well for a very long time. And now, of course, they don't talk to anybody. All they do is have these ludicrous press conferences where they answer hardly any questions. And so, naturally, the press start going to look for things yeah. because that's what they do. But there's a much better way of doing it. They could go back to that. They could do. I think there's an imbalance of, of trust between the police and the media. 
Uh, I think that's definitely post-Leverson, where yeah. there's been this lack of trust, a lack of a bridge between the two. I also think the public have lost a bit of trust in the police because of the various scandals yeah. over the years. Definitely. So the police are sort of standing out on their own, thinking they're going to get hammered for everything. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't create a conducive relationship, and we need that information to yeah. help them solve crimes like this. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, we'll have more from the papers coming up. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Don't move a muscle, uh, because the panel will be back, and you will not want to miss it. This is Talk TV. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Ryan, Leon and Emma are still with me and with the panel. We've got some uh, breaking news, not just from tomorrow's front pages, but this one uh, from Hollywood. Um, after making controversial remarks at a recent pro-Palestinian rally in New York City, Susan Sarandon has been dropped by the United Talent Agency, which is quite a, a, a big step for them to take. They basically said uh, that they didn't like what she said. She said this, there are a lot of people afraid of being Jewish at this time and are getting a taste of what it feels like to be a Muslim in this country, which, um, you know, isn't, she's entitled to her opinion, but uh, they decided that was too strong for them. She also went on to repost one of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters tweets, and he's gone a bit mad anti-Semitic lately. So, um, you know, this, this situation in, uh, in Gaza and Israel is, is, is reverberating all around the world, isn't it? it really is. I think the, the worrying thing is that there's no nuance in the debate. No. You're either one side or you're the other. And I no. think the actual, the right answer is to say, it's a horrible situation yeah. around and we should be looking to find, you know, peace in, in whatever form mm. we can find it. But it has to be, you're either pro-Israel or you're either pro-Hamas, uh, yeah. and I think there is, a, there is a nuance where there are innocent people being caught up in this on both sides, um, but that isn't the way the media uh, is, or the social media is sort of portrayed at yeah. the moment. It's so depressing, this, this inability to, help, to hold two views at the mm. same time, to, to, to be able to talk about it with some nuances. So I think it's partly because of the horror of what happened in October the 7th. I know. And, and, should... and when people then say, oh, yes, but it didn't start then, it still doesn't stop the horror of that one day, because whatever happened before... Nothing's really ever happened like that, and I think that's that's the trouble. And you still keep seeing the, the videos that are sent. But out. what I know, it's but dreadful. what's also happening now is also terrifying and horrifying. And and one can just say, I just, I know it's not trendy to be a pacifist, but what if we just want peace? Yeah. We just want it. Well, we may get news yeah. overnight. Possibly that the hostage deal is done in some way, shape, or form. But I mean, I also find it very difficult to have sympathy with an organisation um, that are holding so many people hostage mm -hmm. in situations <laughs> where there are children there, there are elderly people. I just think it's disgusting. The key thing is it's not, it's not Hamas. You know, they are a terrorist organisation, they are an abhorrent organisation, but it's the Palestinian mm. people who are innocent. Yeah. I mean, that's where the line blurs. Uh, and just as the Israeli people who were, who were murdered on the 7th of October, there are death on either side. And when you read the numbers, it's just horrific. But you know, let's hope that these hostages yeah. do get released and it will be some good news. Yeah. Another terribly sad story today. We all uh, were hoping, I imagine, today that uh, these four teenagers who disappeared uh, would be found alive. But tra tragically, they were found upside down, partially submerged in water in the car that they went um, camping in uh, mm. out, out of uh, into Wales, um, into Snowdonia. Just an awful story. I mean, I've got kids this age, and, and whenever anything like this happens, when you've got children of your own, you just think, God almighty, you know, how just incredibly terrible. And I think some of the mothers didn't even know that their sons had gone on the trip. They thought they were staying with, with somebody and didn't really know they'd gone out, on a, gone out in a car. It just, it's on the front of the Times and the Sun and, and many other newspapers as well. It's just awful, you, you, you can't You can't even imagine it. No. You, you, you know, four children, they go out for a weekend, they go to somewhere like, you know, Snowdonia 
love, you know, fantastic, you know, part they, you know, making the most of their teenage years, mm. and then this this tragic accident happens. Mm. I mean, it's desperate, desperately, desperately sad. Mm. Just... Makes you want to not let your children anywhere near a car. I know well, that's silly, exactly. but I don't no, want my exactly. three-year-old ever to I said, drive. First thing I said, I've got a 19-year-old who's itching to, to drive, and I just keep putting him off. And going, mm. no, I don't think Especially so. boys, you just worry, yeah. worry, worry. Don't you really you? do. Speaking um, of other stories that, that have been doing the rounds, we talked earlier today about parking charges because this is one of those that always winds people up in a massive way, you know, Cow, uh, cash cow councils, according to a piece in the Telegraph, Westminster Council netted 72 million in profits from motorists in the years 22 to 23. Most of the big ones are in London, Kensington, Chelsea, Hammersmith and Fulham, Brighton and Hove. But it's all over the country. They've taken a billion pounds, believe it or not, these local councils in the last year. And even places like Nottingham, um, Manchester, um, Newcastle-upon-Tyne making nearly 10 million a year. It's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. What I are think, they doing with the money? I think they've, they've, there's a massive shortfall of money. Their yeah. budgets are being absolutely stripped. So right. they feel they're not getting the money from central governments. Mm. So they have to make, make amends elsewhere and parking. But so that's a lot of money. It, I mean, it's an easy way to, to get money. And, I mean, uh, Westminster is a Tory um, council, isn't it? They can't be 71 million quid down, surely. Are they? Probably. The, the, the weird Can thing about be? this story is that you've got the councils around the country, which tend to be quite rubbish, mm. but the one thing they are very good really? at is collecting money. Oh, they're brilliant from, at that. From, from, from motorists. Yeah, and council tax, parking, the whole you know, lot. And you think, speeding well, fines. I've got, I've got to pay for my recycling bins, you know, and, and you've got one message that says... Or you, answering the phone. Or answering the phone, answering that type phone, of thing. Well, one message says, try and save the environment, try and, you know, keep... Don't, don't use your cars mm. and what have you. Try and take public transport. Well, hang on a minute. I mean, if that's going to price people out, it's not. That's not an option for anyone, is it? So they have to have public transport that then works for them to be exactly. uh, able to use it. So you either have one thing or the other. They yeah. Have both. Well, there was one thing that I happened to know about in Sussex. You know, Canberra Sands, Sussex Council decided it'd be a great idea to charge people thirty quid to park there, no matter how long they parked there for. And it's like it's a place that people go in the summer. And there was such a revolt about it. They had to they had to drop the idea because people were going, "We're not paying. We're not paying thirty quid just to park at the beach." which is what they're asking people to do. I, I, I get angry when they have to pay to park outside your, your yeah. house. I mean, it costs about uh, 50, 60 pounds yeah. a year. And it's, well, it, I mean, it's it could be worse. I lived When I lived in Edinburgh, um, you used to have to pay for a residential parking permit, but there were less spaces than there were permits given out. So even just having a permit didn't guarantee that you had a space. Yeah. Literally, so you, you're, it's like the Germans on the beach towers yeah. waking up at four in the well, morning with a panic attack yeah. thinking, I better go and get or the car. Or you'd come home a bit late and you'd have to space. park about two miles from where you lived. But can't they use that money to actually improve the roads? As a mm. cyclist, I know that's I know I'll be thrown out when you I will say that. Soon, yeah. <laughs> keep saying, keep mentioning it. Yeah, yeah, and all the viewers it's disappear. As a cyclist, um, as a cyclist, right? You literally take your life in your hands yeah. every day driving over these potholes. There are roads. Well, maybe so you, you should pay some uh, some, cap, some Yeah, some road there you go. There you go. And then they could fix. And then they could fix the potholes. But there are roads in central London, and actually, ironically, around Westminster. Yeah. Where when there's a bit of rain. The entire roads, like the entire roads, yeah. fill up with water. Yeah. In Germany, that would be fixed overnight. The yeah. plumbers would That's come in. That's because environmentally, they're not allowed come to, in and they would sort out the drains. It's because they don't, they don't get rid of the, the crap in the drains, and so the drains they don't drain. They literally don't, and you can't. It's it's treacherous. You can't yeah. even drive over it. You can't cycle over right. it. You can't cycle through it. Pedestrians can't use the pavement. Right. Well, do you remember that? I don't know if you remember the the, the cycle lane they put in that was, I think, coming around Vauxhall Bridge. Yeah. And they put it in, made it, made it out of this ridiculously slippery material, mm. which was kind of a comedy alert, really, for, for people like me, but probably quite dangerous. No, for it turns into everybody, a lake. Everybody that was coming around the bend was falling <laughs> over. 
Not funny. Because it was, and they had to resurface it. I mean, that's how idiotic they are. Who makes these decisions? I think in, in councils, we... Well, in London, we all blame Sadiq Khan. Well, it's well, Sadiq Khan. It, it's Never not, miss a chance. Must be his fault. It's not Never just Sadiq Khan. It's, it's the people in the councils that, that are making these decisions. These jobs worth, yeah. ultimately. And it makes me so angry because whenever you've got a real crime to report or whenever there's, you know, something yeah, that you need it. doing... Forget yeah. it. But if they Our want money from you, station, if they want... Shoreditch police station has been closed. Like, yeah. they just don't open mm. for about five My years. My local police station, I was in it. Down. I was in it literally about the same week that it shut. Um, and the guy was like, I'm sorry about all the mess. Um, he was interviewing about some crime or other. And he said, we're moving. I said, all right, where are you moving? He said, well, we're not really moving to anywhere, but they're selling this place and it's now a block of flats. Wow. You know, and that's like down near Surrey Keys, you know, not far away from here. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. You can't, and if you do find a police station, you have to ring a bell. Then you can't actually walk you in. You can't walk in in distress. If somebody I've just answers been you remote on the corner, yeah. or there's an old lady who right. needs help. There aren't police men in police stations anywhere, or police women. No, shocking. Um, good story in the Sun, page 29. Just stop talking rubbish. United Nations who have been upsetting quite a lot of people lately <laughs> with all manner of things that they've come out with. Um, they apparently are saying that. Uh, Ministers are being too tough on eco-yobs, giving protesters long sentences, risk stifling freedom of speech and protest. This is mostly about the two characters that went uh, up the Dartford crossing. Isn't yeah, it? Too tough? What, they let Just Stop Oil do anything yeah. they want? Well, they started arresting them, though. They've started arresting them. They've they lifted a few of them off yesterday and the day before. Um, Ryan, tell us yeah, the story. I thought this is, yeah, so you've got these two, these United Nations special uh, rapporteurs. Rapporteurs, yeah. You know, these, these, these grand names. Um, and they, they claim but the, the long sentences that have been handed out by the courts are stifling freedom of speech and protest. I mean, it is... I wish they were. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if only they were. If yeah. only they would. <laughs> I thought it was quite interesting that Rishi Sunak came out very, very quickly, actually, to, uh, to sort of condemn these, uh, these comments. And he says it's absolutely right that, um, you know, the selfish, selfish uh, protesters are, are given tough sentences. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't take too long for them for him to, uh, to, to say that. Well, I mean, most of these groups disappear when they start locking them up for, for proper long-term. Like, insulate Britain, you never hear from them anymore because mm. they started locking them all up and they started going back to the M25 day after day after day after but day. But just stop oil. They don't want you to lock them up because they've got foreign holidays books that they need to go on. Yes. And, you know, right. kind of glamping trips right. to do. And glamping well, isn't it funny that when uh, they did all get sort of... Um, Exclusion orders, which I was recommending they should get, like football supporters aren't allowed to certain towns because they've got into riots. They were all complaining they couldn't come into London. And I thought, well, doesn't that tell you where they all come from? Yeah. They all come from outside London. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. where they live in the shires and they it, can come in um, on the train. It's not It's not stifling protest because protest is, you know, doing so peacefully, making a point, and that's fine. These guys are committing criminal damage in most cases by spraying paint over places, private property, ruining people's cars. You know, I think that is ultimately against the law, and the police have a role to step in and stop it. You know, the worst are those people in Bristol who start letting people's tyres down, mm. the extinguish rebellion people, who are just... I mean, they're causing massive damage, and it could be really dangerous. But, yeah, it's the sheer cheek of these UN inspectors, basically, to have a... Uh, yeah, they should bugger off. Yeah. You know, get yeah. back to New York where nobody cares what you do, and you can charge all the parking tickets to, uh, <laughs> to nobody because yeah. you don't actually have to pay them. And don't worry about it, you know? It's absolutely shocking. Now, page two of The Sun, a couple of interesting stories. The Falkland Islands is back in the news because there's a new president of uh, Argentina, newly elected Javier Millet, um, who some people from the right have been saying, oh, he's great, he's just like Donald Trump, so we'll get on with him really well. Uh, and he's, he's on quite a few um, sort of memes on social media already, sort of ripping apart the leftists and the wokists and all that. 
So the slight problem is he wants the Falklands back. <laughs> so oh, I'm afraid there's a bit of a dichotomy of opinion on this one. And the British government have, uh, have said you're not having it, and, and quite rightly. And I yeah. think there is a patrol vessel. Well, it's patrol, ours. The patrol Hands vessel. Hands off the Malvinas. The patrol vessel, a new one is going there, but it, there's always one there, apparently. Right. So, there? Um, right. Uh, yeah, but I, I just think. But one Here he is. What's he cutting up there? He's got a chainsaw. Is he just waving it around? What's he doing? He's just is waving, this taking a, it's like a Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. This is the guy that looks like that actor from the 1960s. He's got an amazing sort of mop of hair. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's real. I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, anything, anything. I can't I can't take the mick out of people's hair. But That's what I, true. I can say is... Andrew that Tate was on against it. I saw that. But he looks <laughs> awful. Um, <laughs> you look like Andrew Tate. You uh, really do. Every time. Every time. Every time. But it never fails. It never fails. <laughs> but I think with the Falkland stuff, every now and then it does crop up, doesn't yeah. it? And I think it probably is when the politicians in Argentina need to start making some some noise um and it looks like she'd be in death leopard or something isn't he there's, 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 there's a slight some aging rocker give about us back the, vol the vulcans exactly some comparison earlier said he looked like benny hill yes well and there's another picture of him where somebody says he looks like he's signed for leicester city about 1973 these big sideboards coming down the side um the other one though slightly more serious schools to deter trans kids this is coming from our favorite um, Minister for Education, Gillian Keegan, who mm. doesn't think she's thanked often enough. Uh, apparently, kids will be deterred from identifying as the opposite gender, except in special circumstances. So that's a big area, isn't it? What does that mean? Mm. Special you, circumstances. You can hide a lot behind the word special. You really can. And I think this is where I think there needs to be a, a little bit of uh, a clarity as, as to exactly what does that mean. And I think that, you know... I don't know what 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 people go through if they if they don't feel like they're the gender that they they were born. I don't know. I can't I can't relate. But if you're a young school child, surely you shouldn't be encouraged to be making those decisions no. at such a young age. I think so. No, we really need to stop this nonsense yeah. right now. We know that that trans genuinely feeling that you've been born in the wrong body is a you know it is it is a, a thing. Real, it is a real thing, but it affects a tiny tiny mm. tiny percentage of the population. We need to stop telling ten year olds mm. about. What is it? Um, being born in the wrong body, you, could, you, you, you don't feel like you're a girl and you're a boy. You can be yourself is what the line is what, now. What we need to teach is acceptance, love is love, yeah. all of that, that however you feel is fine, that we accept people however they... Yeah. We never used to have an, an issue with trans people. No. We, in, in the past, people, some people would dress up um, as the opposite gender yeah. and, that, and that was fine. You're absolutely right. It wasn't no, it's all been weaponized, in this way. It? it wasn't weaponised yeah. and it wasn't making children, young children, yeah. feel they're in the... What's this thing about wrong body anyway? Yeah. We're not meant to make judgments. We're not. Very, we're not. We've got to go. Confusing. We're out of time. Emma, great to see you. Great to see you, Ryan. Leon as well. That's all from me. Uh, you've been watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Thanks to everybody who came in to do a lot of great stuff. I'll see you tomorrow at 9pm. Good night.